You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, everybody knows what that means. That's one of our jodies that we always do on America's Web Radio and starting a, a show that's uh, related to in some form or fashion to the military or veterans or whatever the case might be. And we're starting a new show, and one of my claims that I get to do every time uh, with a new show is introduce it, and I am so happy to be doing this uh, introduction today because it's very important to me, and it's going to be with uh, Pete Mecco. Pete and I have gotten to be friends. Pete was, uh, I interviewed Pete uh, not that long ago, and uh, we got to talking about it, and Pete uh, is quite an author and does uh Many of the uh, veterans shows, or, or veteran stories, I should say. And as I asked Pete when I was interviewing him, have you ever known a veteran that only has one story? With that being said, I'm going to turn the show over to Pete, and he's got a great guest today. So you all stay tuned, and here's Pete. Okay, good morning, America. Uh, welcome to a veteran story on America's Web Radio. I am your host, Pete Mecca. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Who in the world is Pete Mecca? Well, I'm a journalist, author, lecturer, historian, and according to a lot of folks, a third-rate poker player. To learn more about me, check out my bios at America's Radio, netradio. I'm sorry, AmericasWebRadio.com, or visit my personal website, VeteransArticle.com. And by the way, if you go to my website, be sure to buy my book so I can afford to play poker. Okay. All right, now let's get serious for a moment. This program is not about me. A veteran story is devoted to giving veterans and active duty military personnel a voice. It is that simple. I am honored and excited to introduce my first guest, Colonel Patricia Blassie. Her brother, First Lieutenant Michael Blassie, was shot down in Vietnam and listed as missing in action. After almost three decades of heartbreaking efforts, Colonel Blassie and her family finally found Michael's remains. He had been mistakenly buried at the Tomb of the Unknown in Arlington National Cemetery. So ladies and gentlemen, this is a fascinating story. Colonel Blassie, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Pete. Thank you for having me. It's uh, just really a privilege to, to be with you today. I so respect what you do for our nation and reminding us of our history and our veterans. So uh, thank you for allowing me to be here today. Uh, absolutely no problem. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Patricia, tell, is it okay if I call you Patricia? Of course, Pete. <laughs> okay, well, super. And you can call me a third-rate poker player. How about that? <laughs> I think I can. <laughs> <laughs> Patricia, tell us about your young life with your siblings your big brother, Michael, and his journey to become an Air Force pilot. Okay. Um, well, my mother and father, uh, Jean and George Blassie, um, uh, married back in the day and uh, lived in St. Louis. 
And uh, we were a, a lower middle income family. We were, uh, they had five children, Michael being the oldest, then there was Judy, Mary's the middle child, I was number four, and then my younger brother, George. And we, and we grew up in the city. Um, we grew up playing sports, tennis, and soccer, and softball, and, and Michael excelled at those sports um, uh, as he was going through high school. We all looked up to him. Uh, we loved him very much. Uh, you know, the, the, what does it say? The world revolved around him in, in a sense. Um, and we were all very proud of him. And so when he received uh, his appointment to the Air Force Academy, we were just ecstatic. It was one of the first classes to um, have such an honor, right? So we were very, very excited for him. And, and, uh, and then while he was at the Academy, he uh, fell in love with flying. And then from there, as when he graduated, we all got in the car. It was one of the only vacations we ever went to. And we went to see Michael graduate from the academy. And it was a proud, proud day. And then it was off to pilot training for him uh, at Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi. And when he got his pilot wings, we all climbed into the car. And we went down there to see him and celebrate him being coming a pilot in the United States Air Force. And so that was pretty much um, uh, how it worked. And, and uh, it was a grand day. Um, and then it was off the survival training. And then it was off uh, to Vietnam uh, for Michael. Uh, in, uh, uh, as, as a pilot myself, I can imagine how proud he was to get his wings with the United States Air Force. Um, were you concerned when your big brother left for Vietnam? Actually, you know, Michael turned 24 when he was in Vietnam, and I turned 14 that year. And I look back on that time, and, you know, it, we weren't the kind of family that really discussed current events and, and things like that. And, and, and to us, to me in particular, Michael was invincible. You know, and um, I remember that uh, very clearly when we drove him to the airport, it was uh, end of January of 72, and that was back in the day when you could still go to the gate to send somebody off, and right. we were all there, and um, the cousin, I mean, we all just we were watching him, and he turned around, and he just smiled that smile of his that we all knew, and and uh, it was never a thought in my young mind that that would be the last time I saw him. Wow. Okay. How long had Michael been in country before he was shot down? So Michael um, arrived at January 31st of 72. He was shot down and killed over Anlock May 11th of 72. And in that time frame, he had flown 132 missions. Now, this was at the end of the war. I mean, and it was a very intense battle, Operation Linebacker 1. And it was uh, one of the most intense battles of the, the Vietnam War is the way I understand it. Uh, and, and May 11th was a very bad day, not just for Michael, I've learned, in my family, but for many others uh, that were in that battle as well. So, yeah, it was a short period of time that Mike was there. Yeah. And he was flying the, uh, what, T-37 Dragonfly? 
Yes, uh, actually the trainer was uh, converted into an attack aircraft, the A-37, uh, yes, and that's what he was flying. And they fly such low missions, right? And so it's the bomb on target because the friendlies and then uh, the, the, and the not-so-friendlies, and so they would fly very low, hundreds of feet, 100 feet, 200 feet, I mean low. Um, and so because of the type of aircraft and, and the mission, it was very um, dangerous, especially during that battle, and um, he was actually shot down by ground enemy fire um, uh, that day. And so it was, um, it was just a, a, a tough day um, all around. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I know uh, his wingman stuck around for as long as he could. Uh, what was his name? I forgot his name. Yeah, uh, he was a major back uh, then, Major Jim Connolly, and he is now a retired uh, colonel living up in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. But he did. He gave us uh, his first account, uh, first-hand account of what happened with Michael. His aircraft was hit. Um, it, it began streaming fuel. There was no communication from Michael. His plane inverted, and he went in. And because of the intensive nature of the battle, the helicopters that normally go in to find you if you're alive or bring you out so you can go home to your family, the helicopters were in jeopardy. So they flew for as long as they could to, to see if they could get to the site, but they had to pull out. Um, and because their lives were then in jeopardy as well. So, so that was the account by, um, then Major Conley that Michael was killed in action, body not recovered. So it's K-I-A-B-N-R, even though, um, that we were never, um, they, that his remains had not been found. Wow. Okay. That's the, uh, the day the family received the bad news. Uh, tell us about that day. So this is tough. It is tough for any family uh, that has anyone pass away, no matter how they pass away, right? So, right. Um, but it's a, it is a little different for the families who are told that their loved one is either missing in action or killed in action, body not recovered, because there's nothing. You know, you're not given anything except information. So when they came to the house, um, I remember clearly that day my sister Judy was being picked up by her um, her friend because Judy was a flight attendant. Mary was driving home from school. George was sent home from school. I shouldn't have been home. <laughs> That's a whole other story. But I was, and I heard um, doors, car door slam outside the house and I looked out and there were these blue suited people with my mom and dad and I thought oh no so I went into the backyard because I wasn't supposed to be at home but um, someone came back into the backyard and said you need to go into, into the house it was a neighbor who always knew everything about all of us that did anything <laughs> and so I went in and that um, it was just like the strangest thing, looking at these people, they're talking to us and saying, well, this is what happened, but we couldn't find him, but he was killed, but we don't have any remains. And we just, I, I personally, I was just like, um, this, this can't be real. 
and, but it's just like in the movies. If you've ever seen um, a family approached by people in uniform to come say, this is what happened. They do care. They do care. They send a chaplain. They, they want to comfort. But it's just, it's surreal. It, it was a very surreal day. But no one really noticed that I wasn't supposed to be home at that time because it was just a devastating. My mom and dad were you know, besides themselves, and everybody was just trying to figure out what to do with the information that we just received. I can't imagine trying to disseminate that about uh, my brother or sister. Uh, that, that had to be a bad day for your entire family. Well, yes, um, it was it was pretty bad because you know um, we we didn't we didn't deal with it. We 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 just didn't know how to deal with it as a family, and we did grow apart. Um, really, we, remem- we remembered Michael with memorials. But we didn't celebrate his life. There wasn't a, a, a funeral because there was no, not, there wasn't anything to funeralize. I don't know if that's the word. Yeah. <laughs> but but it just, um, we didn't like read his letters. We didn't, I, I don't know. We just, I don't know. It was really, we I don't even know how to describe that part, Pete. I'm, I'm struggling for my words right now. Well, I think it sounds like that everybody went into shock and stayed there for many, many years. Well, I guess that's a way to put it. Thank you, Pete, because I did I did think about that. Your life sort of stops in that vein. You know, of course, we yeah. continued on. We all grew. We all did different things. But that piece stopped. Yeah. We didn't deal with wow. Okay, Patricia, we got to take our first break. We'll be back in just a few minutes, so stay with me. Okay, I sure will. Thank you. Okay. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we are back with Colonel Patricia Blassie, who lost her brother in Vietnam and was listed missing in action. Uh, Patricia, over 58,000 families lost loved ones in Vietnam, but the vast majority of those families had some type of closure. 
yet Michael was missing in action. Uh, that had to be an emotional roller coaster ride for you and your family. Uh, Patricia, tell us about the emotions of having a loved one missing in action and maybe how each sibling and your mother and father responded. It was a very uh, difficult time um, for my family, as we were just talking about. And, and uh, you know, like my sister Mary would think that Michael would come home. She didn't believe that he was killed, you know, because you, when you don't have remains and you haven't uh, dealt with things, she always thought that Michael would walk through the door someday. My um, father dealt with things differently. He built um, with Michael's medals and flag and like a, a the bookcase downstairs with all of the things in there because as I had mentioned earlier, you know, Michael was the oldest and he, he meant a lot to all of us and, and we looked up to him and and uh, he was the firstborn and there is something to be said about firstborns. I know parents don't like to talk about that. <laughs> we understood that because we looked at him that way as well. My mother, um, I lost so much weight and didn't talk about the death of her son for years. Couldn't even really? mention it. Yes. And so, um, so when I think about families today who still are missing their loved ones, I, I just, my heart goes out to them because they, they want to know the rest of the story. And that is what my family and I eventually were like, we need to know the rest of the story and, and we were going to stand strong. And we could talk about that, but I understand their plight. They don't want to give up. But at the same time, it's a very difficult situation because, you know, uh, the, our government is, is looking for people. But that is not an easy task that these people over in, um, they go into Vietnam or in some of these other areas trying to find remains and trying to put all the pieces of a puzzle together and look how many years have gone by. So even though yeah. it's a different mission, I know that their hearts are still wanting to know the rest of the story. Yeah, I understand that. And I think uh, they are going to, it's going to be even more difficult very soon in Southeast Asia, and that includes Laos and Cambodia and maybe even North Vietnam. The Asian soil over there is so acidic that it's starting to eat up bones. So there may not be anything but maybe material-type artifacts left. But uh, it's going to be hard to do DNA and things like that as the bones disintegrate. So we have some very, very dedicated people over there in Vietnam and Laos. We lost so many, so many good people in Laos, and, and very few people realize that. That was one hell of a war going on in Laos. Uh, I think Michael flew over there a couple times, didn't he? Well, you know, they weren't talking about Laos and Cambodia because we weren't really flying over into those areas. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I understand that there were, there were a few missions of his that went into those areas, yes. Uh, well, I think uh, President John Kennedy... When we started getting involved in Southeast Asia, he made the statement that the war will be won or lost in Laos. And he was absolutely right. With the Ho Chi Minh Trail and us trying to interdict it and things like that, uh, God bless Michael. We lost a lot of good boys 
and men and women trying to fight a limited war. Um, okay, well, in truth, uh, Michael's remains had been found within six months, but your family did not know that for 26 years. Plus, the military had ordered his documents destroyed. I want you to run with the ball, Patricia, and tell us what transpired during all that time. Uh, I will try not to interrupt except when it comes time for breaks, okay? <laughs> I don't mind if you interrupt. If I go off on, uh, down a rabbit trail, let me know. But um, as, we talked, as we talked about, Pete, you know, Michael was shot down by ground enemy fire six months six miles north of Saigon in a place called Anlock. A very intense battle was going on that day. His body could not be recovered because of the intensive uh, nature of the battle. Um, and so his designation um, was killed in action, body not recovered. Um, so that was in 1972. So I'm going to skip to 1973 when um, they actually dedicated a building down at Columbus Air Force Base where Michael got his pilot ring, wings, and they uh, they called it Blassie Hall. And that we went down, uh, the family got back in the car and went down there for uh, the dedication of that building. That was our third vacation together, um, dealing with Michael and uh, and celebrating him in a certain way. And we that was a proud day for us too. But it was still a dark day because it was a memorial. But it was an honor to have a, a, a building named after Michael, named Blassie Hall. Yeah. And so then um, I, I just want to skip up to, uh, I guess I'll go, that was 1973, and then we just lived with, you know, what we were told, you know, the firsthand account, uh, and they couldn't find Michael. Um, and, and then we've come up to, uh, what, 1984 with the Memorial Day ceremony up in Washington, D.C., right, where they were, uh, yeah. President Reagan was honoring uh, the, the, the Vietnam veterans by uh, putting an uh, unknown soldier at the Tomb of the Unknowns. And, and the, the, the streets were lined with many thousands of people to honor. Because, you know, Pete, um, I know you know this better than me. You are a Vietnam veteran, but we didn't treat our Vietnam veterans very well. And when they came home, we didn't celebrate their successes. We didn't honor their service in our nation the way we should have. But President Reagan was um, placing an unknown soldier in the Tomb of the Unknowns, just like the other wars already had in that tomb, there, uh, an unknown soldier representing their wars. So this was a, a really a, a, a healing, um, a, a healing gesture for our nation to do this for the Vietnam veterans, and it was a grand day for our nation. Um, so that was in 1984. But then I want to skip up to 1986, if I may, because a book was written by Susan Sheehan, and it's a it's a, um, a called a missing plane, and it's. And she talks about um, that she had visited the Central Identification Lab, and she uh, was working with the people there. And it was all about bringing remains, finding remains from Vietnam and bringing them home to their families. Well, in one or two paragraphs in this book, it talk, she talks about... Um, the, the, the fourth, there was a fourth set of remains at the Central Identification Lab. She talked about how they'd been found by a South Vietnamese Army Reconnaissance Team in late 1972 in a town about 50 miles north of uh, Saigon called An Lok. 
and that they were given a, a designation of X, X26. They consisted of six bones. Right. Talked about the, the artifacts that were found with those remains, the flight suit, remnants of a whole pistol holster, a one-man inflatable raft, and all these all these very particular things about the unknown soldier that was placed in the tomb that day in 1984. It talks about the day he was killed on May 11th of 1972. And it goes on to uh, talk about a few other things that I won't belabor. But that was in 1986 that was written um, about the unknown soldier with very specific things about someone that really was supposed to be known but to God, which is what is on the Tomb of the Unknowns. That is all that we were supposed to know. But Susan Sheehan had some inside information about the unknown soldier. So that was in 1986. And so, Pete, if I may, I'd like to skip up to 1994. When a yeah, man let me, made... yeah, let me uh, like, Patricia, let me make the viewers, uh, uh, I mean the viewers, the uh, listeners very clear on that issue. When Michael was buried at the Tomb of the Unknown, he was just known as X-26, right? Yes, he was known as X-26, that's correct. And and right. so, I'm sorry? No, go ahead, please. Okay, so then I just want to skip uh, up to 1984 when my mother received a phone call from a man Ted Sampley, who was a former Green Beret Vietnam veteran. And he said, Mrs. Blassie, I know, I believe I know where your son is. And now we're talking, uh, my mother, you know, not <laughs> very happy or very sad about her son. And, and she was like, what are you talking about? So she asked him to call me. And I said, Mr. Sampley, what, what can you know something like this? And he said, well, I read the book, A Missing Plane by Susan Sheehan. I read what she wrote. And I started some investigating myself and Michael was killed on May 11th of 72 and those artifacts that were found that were indicated in the book is what an A-37 pilot would have on board with him and I was like oh my goodness well let me do some uh, asking of the Air Force I was a captain at the time so I called the Air Force personnel um, center down at um, down at this, that, that's where the casualty office is. And I said, this is what I'm being told. And, and is it true? Is my brother in the tomb of the unknowns? And they said, by no means is there anything to substantiate that your brother is in the tomb of the unknowns. And I said, well, thank you very much. Because I can't imagine a known soldier being in the tomb of the unknowns. That just could not, I couldn't get my mind wrapped around something like that. And so um, I'm going not to now skip up to 1997 when Vince Gonzalez called us. He's an investigative reporter from CBS. And he said, Pat, I read Ted Sampley's article. I understand what was in the missing plane. I thought it was crazy because Ted Sampley, he was pretty radical. He believed we left POWs and MIAs knowingly in Vietnam. So he was a demonstrator. I mean, really radical though in some ways. But he said, I understand that about him, but I think he's right. And I was like, well, Vince, my mom can't get phone calls like this. See, if it's my brother Michael, then we will work to do whatever we can to find out the truth and bring him home. 
And so I, uh, I asked my mother if she would find an affidavit that would release any document with Michael's name on it so that as Vince did his investigative, you know, through the Freedom of Information Act, that he could get his hands on any document that had my brother's name on it without, you know, any uh, real struggle, right? And so once that happened, all of these documents came flowing, right, with my brother's names on them. And uh, what we weren't told about Michael is that a Vietnamese reconnaissance team went into Michael's crash site on October 31st of 1972 and found Michael. They were sent to his crash site. They found his remains. They found his artifacts. And they found his ID card. And they, the uh, Vietnamese reconnaissance team had Army, U.S. Army officers with them. They had first-hand accounts and said they bundled Michael, put him reverently on the helicopter to Saigon because that was their mission and they thought their job was done. And so, but that's the kind of thing that we found out through documents. We, we found the certificate that, uh, that the mortuary in Saigon signed for Michael. We found a skeletal chart that had all of the artifacts listed on that chart. And it says, um, Blasi, Michael Joseph. And then in, in, in quotation marks, it said BTB. So for whatever reason, it said believed to be uh, Michael. So I, I don't know why, because they had gone into Michael's site, they found his ID card, but some of the documents were getting a little skewed as the 70s went on. Because Michael was found October 31st. These documents, now that I'm looking at, we're looking at a 1978 document where they were talking about the remains of Michael. And, and they used an anthropological formula back then to... <laughs> Yeah, that was before DNA, right? That was way before DNA. Right. It was way before DNA, but they used this formula that would determine how tall or how, or how old you were. Um, and, and this formula uh, hey. estimated Michael, uh, I mean, those remains that were found uh, at Michael's crash site, hey. the age was estimated to be 26 to 33 years. So he missed it by two years because his age was 24. Hey. They estimated... Height within a uh, a bracket of 65.2 inches to 71.5 inches, and Michael was 72 inches tall, so he missed it by a half an inch. And then they said, "I know." And then they said, because of the small quantity of hair uh, that they did a test on didn't match Michael's blood, um, that they used those three factors to say because he missed the age, because he missed the height, and the small quantity of hair, we don't know where it came from, because this document wow. is 1978. He had already been sitting on the shelf for six years. That's With amazing, the- Patricia. we got to go to another interrupt you. Uh, we'll be- Hold your thoughts, Patricia. We'll be right back with you, okay? Okay. Thank you, Kate. Good morning, everyone. I'm... The- want to uh continue what we're doing here with Pete and Patricia. I this is just uh has this story is is getting to me quite honestly and uh, I want to remind everybody that we have some things here in Atlanta that no other 
state in the Union has, and one is the Healing Wall, which is the replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. It's called the Johns Creek Healing Wall, and uh, it's in Johns Creek, and you can find it very easily, and it's the uh, 50% size of the wall in the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. that has traveled all over the country. And Johns Creek, Georgia bought it, and uh, they've put it up. It's in a beautiful surrounding, and if you're coming to Atlanta, may I suggest that you go to that, If particularly if you lost someone, a friend, a family member in Vietnam, just like Patricia did. Um, it, it's And it's called a healing wall, and it's a lot of people have said they found closure there. So we've got that. We've got the memorial uh, in Peachtree Corners that's a uh, memorial to uh, veterans. And then we've got the best thing going, and it's being it's got to be great because it's being copied by many other states now, and that's the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And this is heroes from every war that are from Georgia. And I think that you'll find it absolutely fascinating. Uh, the stories of our heroes that lived and moved from Georgia into a military situation. And those, uh, many of them came back, many of them didn't come back. So the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, it's right across the street from the state capitol. It's open Monday through Friday. Uh, the... Healing Wall in Johns Creek is open 24-7, and we encourage you to go by there and, and just take a look at it. The Peachtree Corners Memorial, um, it's open weekdays, and we encourage you to do that. With all of that being said, we're going to take a quick station break, and we'll be back with Pete and Patricia right after this. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we are back with Carol Patricia Blassie. Uh, Patricia, you were talking about the testing they did at the mortuary in Tonson Newt. Uh, continue with that story, please, ma'am. Yes, so um, we were talking about the anthropological formula that was being used back in the day to determine height, um, age, and, and so... And then, of course, they had done a test on the hair that they had found wherever they found that hair from, um, and it didn't match Michael's uh, blood type. So because of those three factors, Pete, um, it was recommended by the, the uh, uh, Dr. Fiorari, um, who worked there, and he was the expert, to take the Blassie name, Michael Blassie's name, away from those remains because they said it wasn't him. And so with that, that was in 1978, and with that, they, the uh, an Armed Services Graves Registration Office Board met in 1980 to take a look at those remains, take a look at what was recommended, and this board of four people took Michael's name away from his remains in 1980. So... Um, that was another document that we found. Um, and, and so as we were finding these documents, we were like, oh, my goodness, because we had never been told these things about Michael. I mean, 
that his name was being taken away, that his, his remains were found. Now his name was being taken away. And, and all these decisions that were being made about Michael and his remains that were, was unbeknownst to my mom and dad in particular. And so uh, that given in 1980, they took his name away. And as you mentioned earlier, they gave him the designation of X-26. And, and, and we found that very interesting because the, a board doesn't know what they're really doing back. They didn't know what they were doing when they gave him that designation of X-26 because truly it took us 26 years to find Michael. Who would think that a number would mean so much to a family once we found him? But anyway, it's just... It's just a side note. But then, you know, there was other documents as we went along uh, in one an Air Force position paper saying that there there was no criteria that um, the criteria of an unknown soldier. Because as, as you might recall, it, everything was ginning up in the early 80s about the discussion was, hey, there should be a Vietnam unknown. The veterans groups were coming out. The pressure was building have an unknown. And what's interesting, Pete, it was back in January of 1973 is when Congress wrote the law that there would be an unknown soldier. So that was written back in 73. And a crypt was put up at the tomb not long after. But here we are in the early 80s, we still don't have an unknown. Michael was sitting on the shelf from 1972 until now we're into the early 80s because his name had been taken away from him by that, that board. Is, that, that is heartbreaking. That is absolutely heartbreaking. It, it, well, you know, and some of the things as I went along, I was just, I, I would get so sad because I was like, what in the world? But then I would keep reminding myself, truth matters. Truth is hard to take, but I'd rather know the truth. So the, our family just kept sort of plodding along as we learned things about um, about these documents and decisions that were being made. But there was one document, and this now we're getting really close to Memorial Day of 1984, and it's a document. It's, it's dated 4 April of 84, and it's uh, signed by Johnny Webb. And Johnny still works at the Central Identification Lab, which was moved to Hawaii. And he, he wrote a document saying that these uh, some of the documents I just described to you, they all have names, that they were being taken out of the X-26 file and placed into the Blassie file. And so that's when, this was like our smoking gun document is what I call it, but that is when we knew X-26 and Michael Blassie were one in the same, that they were related, and that is when my mother, you know, called a, a family meeting, I traveled to to St. Louis, I was living in Atlanta at the time, traveled to St. Louis, had binders for each of my family members, and we went through these documents and took a look and, and, and had a, a family discussion, one of the first family discussions we ever had, not unlike yeah. the didn't have back in 72. We started talking about him. We started uh, laughing, going, maybe we're going to find him. But the, the discussion was really around what do we do with with this information and how, how daunting is it to confront the government? And, and my sister Judy would say, I don't think anybody really cares. 
because no one has cared all these years. So, you know, so we talked about that. And, and so even though people might not have cared, what, what, what about us? What as a family? Because my father had already passed. So it was just my mother, my two sisters, and my brother and me. And then Mary was like, wait a second, you know, um, if I was lost, my, Michael would come find me. And we talked about that, and, and, and we believed that. And then George was like, well, wait, it's, it's really an honor to be buried at the Tomb of the Unknown. And then he had another revelation, because we talked about, it, is it an honor? Is it sacred ground when there's a known soldier in the Tomb of the Unknown? Is, is it still sacred, as they call it? And then he, he goes, wait a second, Michael's a hero. He deserves to be known. And, and it was so interesting because our, our mother is very patient, very strong, very strong, but very quiet and very patient. She waited for the siblings to get done because it really didn't matter what the siblings thought. It mattered what the matriarch of the family thought. And she sure. said, I want to bring my son home. I want his, his tombstone with his own name on it. And that is wow. when, uh, Judy, Mary, George, and I looked at her, and, and we, we made a pact. We said we'd stick together. We'd go, and, and, and we'd do whatever we needed to do to bring Michael home for my mom. That's, that's outstanding. Uh, I remember you mentioned that the gentleman at the Mortuary Affairs did not dispose of Michael's uh, remains as he was ordered to do. Tell the listeners what happened. Okay. So I, I, I do um, I, am very grateful for um, Johnny Webb in particular uh, because he still works at the mortuary. And and um, uh, when, when an unknown soldier is placed in the Tomb of the Unknowns, there were documents saying that everything associated with those remains, X-26, should be shredded or destroyed. And um, so that did not happen because the documents we're finding, we found, they were not shredded. Uh, Johnny's memos were not shredded. And um, as we confronted our government on national news saying, we want to bring Michael home, we want to know the truth, the trail leads to the tomb. As we said those things, they established a task force. They researched the same documents we did and more. They had access to much more than we ever did. And they interviewed those who were involved, but those who also would never have talked to us at that time um, because they were at such high levels, the former Secretary of Defense and people like that, the former Secretary of the Army. Um, we did not have access to that level of, of people who were in the decision-making process. So, but they, they, they developed that task force, and, and they, they did their research. And in May of, seven, in May of 1998, because we went public in January of 98, in May of 1998, they uh, recommended to the Secretary of Defense, then William Cohen, that the remains should be disinterred for DNA testing, and that's exactly what happened. They sent a team of young people from Scott Air Force Base to come to my mother's apartment to take her blood so that she could, uh, that her blood and my sister Judy's blood 
could be used to perform that DNA test with the remains that were going to be disinterred from the Timothy Unknowns. And that's exactly what happened. And when they did that test, the test was 99.9% Michael Blassie. And that's when Secretary Cohen called my mom on, on June 30th uh, and said, Mrs. Blassie, you can finally bring your son home um, to St. Louis, just like you want. And so and that's what we did. And it was, it was, a, it was a, a wonderful thing. Um, but before I go to that part, Pete, I'd just like to say the team came to my mom's home before, um, after the DNA test to tell her about their science. They were these young, beautiful people. And they were telling her about, they were so excited about their DNA test and, and that they could identify Michael because it was a blind analysis. So they didn't know which set was Michael's. Uh, and so they wanted to tell her that. And she was really enamored with these young people. But there was also a man there that said, uh, Mrs. Blassie, um, when we opened the Tomb of the Unknowns, inside were uh, the artifacts, um, the library, the parachute, the, the, uh, the portions of the flight suit, his holster, all of that was in the tomb with Michael. And he goes, what would you like to do with that? And we were like, we want those artifacts, and, and we, we have them still today. But uh, to your point, going back, when they selected the unknown, the idea is that everything would be destroyed. But I'm very grateful that the documents weren't destroyed and the artifacts weren't destroyed because otherwise we would not have been able to prove it was Michael and the Timothy Unknowns. Oh, man, what a fascinating story. We've got to go to our last break, Patricia. Stand by. We'll be right back. And okay, our, thank you. And our last break is going to cover the fact that this show, like all of our shows, are archived, and uh, we're going to suggest that, uh, as we're mentioning the fact that this has been archived, is that uh, people uh, bring their own box of Kleenex. Uh, this is one of the most touching stories I've ever heard in my life, and uh, I want to thank Colonel Blassie for sharing her family story with us, and, the, and this is something that... You can't stop until you find out the truth. And uh, this has just been absolutely amazing for our first show, a veteran's story. And uh, this is quite a story. And we look forward to weekly bringing you this show and many other shows about veterans. And, again, want to encourage you to go to the Johns Creek Healing Wall. That's the... Uh, 50% size of the, it's the replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. And also, please put it on your schedule to go to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame and look at all the folks that have come from Georgia that have served their country. And I guess I get choked up when I hear this statistic, and particularly today, is that on less than 1% of the population serves in our military. And if you've got a son or a daughter that's graduating from high school or college or just a mixed-up kid that hadn't quite decided what they want to do, look at the military. It's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for everybody. 
I've got a son that's in the military that I'm very, very proud of. He's doing quite well in the Air Force. Uh, he's a major in serving in Germany, and I'm very, very proud of him. And you will be, too, just as Patricia has spoken of her brother, Michael. And uh, before we go, I'd like to, uh, Pete, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask Patricia to find out why Patricia joined and, uh, you know, a little bit more about uh, her career in the Air Force. So with that being said, you're listening to America's Web Radio. This is a brand new show that will be on weekly, a veteran's story. And if all of them are like this, I'm going to have to uh, get a bigger stack of Kleenex. Thank you for listening. And now back to Pete. Okay, Patricia, I believe we're back on the air. Uh, Michael's homecoming. Tell us about that. Oh, my goodness, Pete. Um, you know, when when Secretary Cohen called us um, that day and told my mom that she could bring her son home, we were like, we won. We found him. We were ecstatic. <laughs> And then at the same time, we were so sad, and, and, and we went back and forth with our emotions. It was just an incredible time. But what, what, what the thought was is that we wanted truly to bring him to St. Louis at Jeffer- and bury him at Jefferson Barracks, at the National Cemetery in St. Louis. And, and that's exactly what we did. George, our, the youngest, he flew up to Dover which is where they prepared the remains and and how they do things up at Dover. They have the mortuary there. He flew up in uh, to escort his brother Michael home after 26 years. He George was not part of the military ever, but he was on an 8th SOS, 8th Special Operations Squadron aircraft, C-130, that was uh, assigned down in Florida, and he flew back with the crew with Michael on that airplane to Scott Air Force Base, and then Michael was uh, taken back to St. Louis on, on, on that Saturday morning, July 11th of 1998. I would think there was about four to 5,000 people who came to celebrate with us, Pete. It was, uh, we, we were riding, and people were just, we, we, we didn't know what to think, actually. There were Vietnam veterans who had never buried their friends or their, 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 their colleagues from Vietnam. There was the flight lead, Jim Conley, the, the woman that we thought Michael would marry, uh, Lou. And, and then there were his, some of his academy uh, uh, roommates who came that had named their son after Michael. And then his roommate from Vietnam, Peter, and all these uh, gambit of people who came uh, to St. Louis to celebrate with us that day. Um, it was just it was a beautiful ceremony. It was honoring to all veterans. And, and you know, it made us, it caused us to pause, Pete, and what is in a name, right? Um, you know, when you go to the Vietnam Memorial with those 58,000 names of people, it's, it's very striking when you see someone's name. And, and when you shake someone's hand, you say, my name is Patricia, and who are you? And, oh, I'm Pete. However you do that, but a name is is critical to all of us. And a, a, a Navy SEAL friend of mine once said to me, he is tough now, but he, he, he said, Pat, what, 
what does anybody put on their tombstone? They put their name and the years of their service and what service that they were in. He goes, go find your brother. And then so it was just like we were able to do that. We have, you know, we were able to celebrate Michael. We were able to bring him home. My mother, my mother, uh, before she passed away in 2013, but she had the rest of the story about her son. And, and if, if there's anything that I, um, am thankful for to be in here besides for everything else in, in my life, it's that I was able to help. And my family and I worked together. We stuck together and we brought him home and my mother can rest peacefully too. Thank God. Fascinating story. I'm glad Michael's home. Patricia, <laughs> thank you. Being a Vietnam veteran, I think about Vietnam every day. It's just in my DNA. I'm sure it's the same with you concerning Michael. Am I right? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Okay. And your military career, did uh, your brother's death spur you to join the Air Force? <laughs> well, you know, okay, when I joined, um, I was 17 years old. It was in 1976, and uh, Michael had already been um, uh, gone for four years now. He had was he was killed in 72. I joined in 76. But when they came to my class, you know, I had no direction, and I didn't have someone saying, hey, Pat, you have some gifts, you know, uh, why don't you try this, or leading me, or a product, getting me to go in some direction. I did not have that. And so when the recruiters came to my school and they said, travel, training, and an education, uh, in my 17-year-old mind, I was like, that's it. The next day, I went <laughs> down, I signed up, and it was under the delayed enlistment program. So eventually, I had to have my mom and dad's um, signature because I was only 17 when I signed those papers. And so I finally told them, and it was, it was, I don't think they were very happy. My mother cried. I don't think my father had much confidence in me to even get through basic training. But, um, <laughs> it was the best thing I could have ever done. And I'll, and I'll tell you what. I got to travel. I got an education. And I was trained. And, and the reason why I believe that the Lord allowed me to um, go into the career fields that I went into. I, was, I wasn't operational like many of our Vietnam vets. Operational is much different than a support officer, which is what I, what I am and what I was. But I was trained in communication, media relations, congressional relations, community relations, speaking, writing, and I had a foundation of when this came to my family's life that I was able to help my family. We set up a command post, you know, in, her, in my mother's uh, apartment. We operated out of there. We dealt with everything. But if, if I had not been trained and had the disciplines that the military brought to my life, uh, and then, of course, um, what God has had done with me and my faith in him, I could not have helped my family. And so when I look back on when I enlisted and I didn't know nothing, <laughs> I am just so grateful to the Air Force for my training and my education and my and now you have And now you have the, the, the bird of a full bird colonel. <laughs> yes, okay, I do. Uh, 
Blassie family. <laughs> the Blassie family and Michael Story will go down in history. Colonel Patricia Blassie, United States Air Force retired. Thank you so much for being my first guest. I do have to tell you that my adjutant at the Atlanta World War II Roundtable was very impressed with your presentation uh, when you talked to us. Plus, he said, man, she is a cutie pie. <laughs> Patricia, hey. I have to. Patricia, I have to agree. I have to agree with my adjutant. You are a cutie pie, but I want to make this perfectly clear. This is the first time I have ever called a colonel a cutie pie. Well, you know you're making me laugh. I haven't been called a cutie pie in a long time. Maybe when I was young, <laughs> but I will take it as a very high compliment. <laughs> you should. You should. You're a wonderful lady. Uh, thank you for your service to the country. Uh, God bless Michael. I'm glad he's home and resting in peace where he should be. And Colonel Blassie, God be with you and your family. Thank you, Pete. I'm so honored to be with you today, and I, I value your friendship, and I thank you for all that you're doing for our history and for our veterans. Yes, ma'am. We shall talk later, okay? Okay. Take care. Okay. All right, okay. folks. That's, uh, that's Colonel Patricia Blassie. What a story. Uh, you know, this program survives on donation from a listener, so please, vis please visit americaswebradio.com and click on Contact Us, and you'll find our address on the right. Uh, if you've sent in a donation, be sure to mark the section. Uh, but let me uh, let me interrupt yeah. here. Uh, uh, let me interrupt yeah, for one ahead, second. David. There's a uh, you can become a patron of America's Web Radio, and whatever you want to do with it, uh, you just join as a patron, and uh, it'll do you know ten, fifty, whatever you want to donate monthly, and it'll just uh, you work it out with your. Uh, it's an automatic draw, and. Uh, Okay. goes into PayPal, and that's probably the easiest way. And we appreciate it, and we're going to be bringing more and more military and veteran shows to America's Web Radio. As I mentioned to you earlier, uh, Pete, we're, we're, going to, we're going to start a history show because we're appalled at what public schools are teaching, uh, quote-unquote, as history. One page in a history book for World War One? I? I don't think so. Three pages for World War II. I don't think so. We're going to bring the truth and history back to where it belongs. And we have a professor of history that is ecstatic about doing the show. And, Pete, for your first show, I felt like I, I was involved with a, a professional, you know, that you'd come down from uh, CBS, but you're more professional than those guys are. So, anyway... <laughs> I, I want to thank, thank you. you. I thought David. it was a great show. Uh, I, I will say that Patricia is a special young lady. Uh, we had her at the Atlanta World War II Roundtable where I'm the commander, and there was not a dry eye in the house. She gives a fantastic presentation. I can believe it. I was sitting here uh, pushing them back myself. And um, I, uh, if you'll hang on, we're going to go ahead and... Uh, in a moment, start. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start it. And uh, if you'll hang on for me, uh, Pete, I'll be right back to you, okay? You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.